what were their last words? I think it's a question that has been asked time and time again. Uh, someone, I'm not sure who it was, but has calculated that the average person says over 860 million words in a lifetime. I know a few people who squeeze a few more than, uh, than that uh, as well. But, but bearing that in mind, why are we so concerned? Why are we so interested in the last words that people may say? Well, I think it's because when people are faced with their mortality, you expect them to say things that are profound, that have deep meaning, not things that are trivial or frivolous. I guess it's probably fair to say, isn't it, that many of those 860 million words that we may utter in an average lifetime could be left unsaid without too much inconvenience. In fact, maybe... Some of them, it would be better if we hadn't said them as well. Very few of them are important, are profound. Well, some time ago in, in Sion Chapel in, in Mardi, where I'm the, uh, the pastor the, of the church, we looked at, I think, the most profound words that were ever uttered by someone just before their death. And uh, I'm guessing it won't surprise you uh, that I'm talking about the words that Jesus expressed from the cross. Now, I don't know if you noticed the way I worded that. I had to word that quite carefully, didn't I? Because it's important to make a distinction between the words that Jesus uttered from the cross and someone else's last words. Because, of course, almost uniquely, Jesus' words from the cross, the words that he uttered shortly before he died, weren't, of course, his last words. He went on to call Mary by her name. He went on to invite Thomas to put his finger in his hands into his, uh, into his uh, wounds. He went on to commission Peter to feed and to tend his sheep and his lambs. He went on to explain to the uh, disciples along the road how he came and he fulfilled the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, and there were many other statements, many other things that Jesus said after his resurrection. And of course, he still speaks today. But I think his words from the cross are, are special, are significant. There were seven phases that he said. And I want to, this morning, look at just one of those uh, phases. And perhaps the one that, at first value, looks the most mundane, the least significant. But I hope we'll see as we look at it in some detail this morning that you will see that um, there's an awful lot in, it. in fact, it's the shortest, and we read of it in John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I first, I first. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, the, uh, um, the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and uh, uh, he was a, a blessing to many. One of his characteristics of his tremendous ministry over many years was how he covered passages in great detail. I can remember once uh, hearing someone say that uh, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones could easily get months of, of Bible studies or sermons from a semicolon in the book of Romans. And uh, uh, you know what they mean. I, I might say that it really was a great blessing. My mother had the privilege of sitting under his ministry just for a few months in her teenage years, and she still uh, talks about it. You may be thinking, well, he's going to have to do a Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones this morning. Uh, I first, 
Just those words coming out with a, a full message, a full sermon from that. Well, that's not the case. Actually, there's an incredible amount in those, that short expression. Depends on the version. I am thirsty. I thirst, apparently in the original Greek, which I'm not much uh, good at, but I, I am reliably informed. It's just one word. And yet there's so much in Jesus' exclamation from the cross. I thirst. A famous Christian writer by the name of A.W. Pink put it like this. I thirst. What a text for the sermon. A short one, it's true. Yet how comprehensive, how expressive, how tragic. The maker of heaven and earth with parched lips. The Lord of glory in need of a drink. And he was quite right. That which at face value seems a most ordinary statement becomes quite extraordinary as we consider it a little bit more deeply. How extraordinary that he who created the rain, he who created the rivers, the sea, the oceans, he who created water itself should thirst. Allow himself to find himself in such a situation. Now, what were the circumstances? Well, John explains uh, a little bit more of the, the context of it. We know, of course, that Jesus was upon the cross. Notice that John himself says that, uh, all, that all now was finished. What does he mean by that? Well, it's hard exactly to piece anything together in terms of what happened upon the cross. We've got four different gospel accounts. Uh, and uh, by working together, we can try and work out something of, a, of an order, although we can't be absolutely certain on all things. But certainly some people have suggested that it would appear, in terms of the seven expressions from the cross, that uh, as the crucifixion, of course, took place over six hours, started at 9 a.m., the third hour, darkness fell at noon, the sixth hour, it lasted until 3 p.m., the ninth hour. People suggest, possibly, that it's likely that the first three expressions that Jesus uttered from the cross, which is, Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise, and behold, your son and your mother were uttered in the first three hours. That's what some people are, have, have tried to, to, to work out, and they think the suggestion is that is. It would appear that possibly, and we can't be definite on this, but the other four sec happened right at the end of the second three hours, if you like, in perhaps quite quick succession. We can't be sure. But certainly that's uh, one, one view that's been expressed. And it fits because what does it say here? John says, knowing that all now was, that all was finished, was now finished. What's he saying? The intense suffering that Jesus had faced during those three hours of darkness was largely over by this stage. Jesus recognized that that which God had given him to do was finished. He knew the end was imminent. His hour had come. And he's speaking now in anticipation of the completion of his work. So what can we learn from Jesus' expression, I thirst? Well, we're going to see three things from it. I'll tell you them now so you can see where you're, you're heading and uh, you'll, you'll understand uh, the progress we're making. The first one is we're going to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We're going to see the second one, Jesus came in human flesh. And then the third one we're going to see is Jesus is the only source of true satisfaction. So first of all, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
Now, it may well be you're sat there and you're thinking at the moment, so, well, I've heard the three that he said, and I get the second one. I can certainly see how that relates to the expression, I first. And I think I know where he's going to head down with the third one. But what on earth is Jesus saying, I first upon the cross? Got to do with the fact that he is the Christ, is the Son of God, that his deity. You, you may sit there thinking that. Well, if you're thinking that, that's good because it shows you're thinking. You're not just uh, uh, sort of taking in and, and just uh, accepting things at face value. It, it may not seem that Jesus calling out I first has got anything to do with the fact that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, can I suggest to you and try to convince you that actually it has an awful lot to do with that? As we went through all of the expressions, one of the things that we found again and again from Jesus' expressions from the cross was that often they came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Again and again, we found that as we were doing it back in Sion. And it's very noticeable in this expression that John wants to emphasize that point. I look at it again, the verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then John pauses and says, to fulfill the scripture, I first. The Apostle John wants people to know that this came in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. So what scripture, what Bible passage was fulfilled by Jesus uttering these words? Well, actually, there's two possible passages, and probably actually both of them are, are, are correct. Psalm 22, verses 14 and 15. I'll read those verses out to you now. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, or it can be translated, my mouth has dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Now, of course, Psalm 22 has already been uh, cited by Jesus from the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Earlier on in John's Gospel, in John 19, the point's been made also that, uh, again, there's fulfillment of, this, uh, of this, uh, this psalm in this passage. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This passage, Psalm 22, verses 14 and 15, particularly paints a graphic picture of what it's like to thirst. What it's like to thirst upon a cross. Thirsting perhaps isn't one of those things that we think of when we think about crucifixion, do we? And yet actually it was very much a part of the suffering of that horrific process of dying. We think that we thirst, don't we, on a day like today, a, a warm day, think, oh yeah, I'm feeling thirsty. We don't know anything of the real meaning of what it would have been like to thirst upon a cross. When people were crucified, they lost an awful lot of body fluid. They'll have probably already been whipped. Certainly Jesus had been. And so they lose liquid that way. Uh, they're bleeding. Of course, in Jesus' case, we know that he was, he'd been sweating profusely in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. Then as they were crucified, they had nails. And it wasn't neat kind of nails like we have today. There were rough bits of wood driven through uh, this and through the, the feet and the ankles as well. They're bleeding heavily. They're losing body fluid. And of course, this happens in the middle of the day as well, in the midday heat as well. So they get dehydrated incredibly quickly. In fact, 
That was one of the causes of death in crucifixion. People died from the dehydration. And scientists say that actually through thirst is one of the greatest pains. It's horrific. Bearing that in mind, let me read those verses again. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My mouth has dried up like a pot's hurt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. What a graphic picture. Jesus being poured out like water, his mouth drying up like a bit of clay pottery, his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth. It certainly fits what we read that happened upon the cross. But there's another verse that also fits, and that's in later on in the book of Psalms, Psalm 69, verse 21, where we read, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm 69 is a psalm in which the psalmist laments how the Lord's servant is scorned and betrayed and faces great suffering and was to be given sour wine to drink. The idea of this passage is connected with uh, John's account of Jesus saying, I first, is, is actually quite compelling because the Greek version of that psalm that would have been familiar to the people of Jesus' day contains very similar vocabulary to the one that was used by Jesus and the way that John recorded it in his gospel. It seems very likely that we're meant to see the connection between that verse and John's account of Jesus' words. Now, why is this important? Why is this significant, the connection there? Well, when you consider, and especially when you consider how Jesus also fulfilled many other of the messianic promises in the Old Testament, the fact that Jesus said those words shows that Jesus was the saviour that God had promised to send. He fulfilled it. He is the one that the Old Testament speaks about. Remember, there have been many other messiahs or rumoured messiahs around at this particular point, but Jesus was different in many, many ways, but he was specifically different in the fact that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And John wants to emphasise that point. And that's why he says, Jesus said, to fulfil the scripture, I first... Jesus himself had nothing to do with how most of those Old Testament promises were fulfilled in his death. He didn't betray himself. He didn't falsely accuse himself. He didn't uh, mock himself or pierce his own hands and feet. He didn't gamble for his clothes or ensure that his, his uh, bones weren't broken. He didn't lay himself in a rich man's tomb, of course. They were done to Jesus by others. But he did say... I first. And he said it knowing the fact that he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy as he uttered those words. He knew himself to be the saviour of the world. And John emphasises the fact when Jesus said that, he did it fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Why did John write his gospel? Well, if you look a little bit later on in John, you'll see in John 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, 
which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's one of John's points as he records Jesus' words here upon the cross? That these seemingly insignificant words and the actions of the people around Jesus at that particular time are further evidence for John of who Jesus is. That he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. He is the one the Old Testament speaks of. He is the Messiah, the Christ. Even this small exclamation of Jesus upon the cross, John takes as evidence as to who he is. The second point that I want to uh, highlight from this uh, expression of Jesus on the cross, this phrase, I thirst, is that it teaches us that Jesus came in human flesh. They're significant, massively significant, improving Jesus' humanity. Though he is God, he came in human flesh. Yes, he is 100% God, but he is also 100% human too. Now that's not something, is it, that people today struggle with too, too much. Uh, we may need to, to convince them, uh, particularly those who've been heavily influenced by sort of secular humanist culture that Jesus is divine. They may have an issue over that. The evidence that we find in scripture that is there for us to use that. But most people don't have an issue with him being human, fully human. His existence as a man upon earth cannot really seriously be doubted. He is a fact of history. But in church history, actually, there have been times where people have struggled with that idea, the idea of Jesus being truly human. There was a teaching many centuries ago called Godocetism, and they taught that because Jesus was fully divine, fully, fully God, therefore he couldn't have been fully human. And uh, Therefore, his, his body really was kind of like an illusion, almost like a ghost-type illusion. I think that's what the word docetism comes from, this idea of the phantom as well. And that was a view that spread, but very lightly, quickly, it was highlighted, the fact that it was understood that that was heresy, that it was wrong and it was dealt with early on. It's important that we see that. Jesus came in human flesh. He was fully human. That is sensible to the Christian gospel. It's key. And this expression of Jesus from the cross is very important in understanding that. You see, God just doesn't get thirsty. He doesn't get thirsty. God is never short on fluids. The first of Jesus Christ upon the cross was the first of a dying man. It was proof that he was human. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was and is both fully God and fully human. And we need Jesus to be a man. If he was going to save us, if he was going to pay the price of our sin, if he was to die in our place, he needed to be one of us in order to do it. Now if secularists perhaps don't struggle with the idea of Jesus being a man. Perhaps in a way Christians do. You know, we can forget it, can't we? We can forget, we can forget that he grew tired. 
that he got hungry, that he had bodily functions. It almost seems scandalous to say it, doesn't it? But it's true and it's vital that we, we understand that, that we, we see it to be the case. We actually see this throughout Jesus' life. And on many occasions, we actually see it side by side at the same time. Let me give you a few examples. As a man, Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. And as God, he commanded him to come out. As a man, Jesus was so exhausted he could sleep in a storm-tossed boat. And as God, he commanded the wind and the waves, be still. And we see it here on the cross. As God, he gives forgiveness and eternal life to a penitent dying thief. And yet a short time later, we hear him say, I thirst. The fact that Jesus thirsted upon the cross reminds us just how completely he entered into our humanity. Now, now what does that mean? Well, for Christians, that should be a great blessing. That should be a great encouragement. For when we suffer, Jesus understands. There's a wonderful verse, and I'll just share it as we close this particular point. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, and you'll be familiar with it, I'm sure. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus entered fully into our humanity. He understands. And that should bless us and encourage us in our lives. So the final lesson that I want to draw out from uh, this expression of Jesus from the cross I first is the fact that Jesus is the only source of true satisfaction. And I think this is another lesson that John, as he recorded his gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us, of course, to, uh, to understand and to see in his record and in Jesus' words from the cross. Now, in John, in his writing, of course, there's a number of books in the New Testament that are penned by John, his gospel, the letters, the book of Revelation. As he writes, he develops certain themes, and you see them coming back again and again in his writings. And water and the experience of thirsting are, are one of those themes that we see repeated. But if we were to read through John's gospel from the beginning to the end in, in, in one go, when you get to this expression of Jesus saying, I first, there's a very strong chance you're going to sit there thinking, well, hang on a minute, that, that's strange. That doesn't seem to kind of fit in, perhaps. It seems maybe a bit incongruous. Maybe even inconsistent. Something that's come earlier on in John's Gospel doesn't seem to fit, perhaps, with what we read here in John chapter 19. I'll read the verses that uh, are pertinent to this. John chapter 4, you'll be familiar with the event, I'm sure many of you. Jesus sitting by a well in the middle of the day. And we read from verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for the drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Uh, For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see my point? In the same gospel, we read that the one who offers this Samaritan woman water that will forever quench her thirst is recorded towards the end of the gospel exclaiming, I thirst. And John records both of these events in a way that clearly will be noticed. And yet he says, at the conclusion, that he's writing that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they would have life in his name. You say, well, how does that work? You know, it seems almost to contradict it, doesn't it? Well, the first point, of course, to make, and it's a very important point, is that the water here in John 4, that Jesus is speaking of, is is metaphorical water. Jesus on the cross had a physical thirst. The woman had a spiritual thirst. Life was empty. It was unfulfilling. Now, if we're honest, we're the same, aren't we? Without God, we are missing something. We are thirsty. We go through life panting for something, anything that will satisfy us, anything that will give us meaning and points. People look in the area of material possessions by pursuing more and more and trying to get something better, and they think, eventually I'll get to the point, and I'm I'm happy at that point, but it's not quite yet come. They go through life that way. They look at it in relationships. Well, if only I had that relationship, if only I knew them, if only I was married to or, 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 or linked with this particular person, that would satisfy it's always something more. A career. I haven't quite made it yet. But there'll come a point when I'll be at the top. And then, that'll be all that I need. We're thirsting after something else. But they never truly satisfy. Some of the things that people uh, look for, meaning and pointing, are obviously destructive. Although ultimately all of them are, because we're looking in the wrong place. Why do we have such a thirst? Why do we have that, that, that innermost feeling driving us on to get something that we are missing at the moment? It's because sin has taken away our relationship with God. We're meant to know him. That's what's missing. That's what satisfies. That's what Jesus is speaking about when he offers to this woman living water. The only thing that satisfies, knowing Christ, being right with God through him, through the fleshment, through even to our souls. Why does John want to flag this up? Well, for this Samaritan woman to have had 
the living water. And for those also, Jesus had to first upon the cross. That was why he was there. If you look at the gospel accounts and you, you work through the different gospel accounts, you'll actually see that Jesus was offered a drink on three different occasions on the cross. One was as the soldiers were mocking him. Uh, early on in Matthew's gospel, it records though, he was offered wine mixed with gall. That was about the only humane act that you actually read of in the crucifixion of Jesus. What they were being offered, what Jesus was being offered, was a very mild kind of anesthetic, a slight painkiller. But remember what Jesus did, he refused it. He wouldn't take it. Why? Because he was about an extraordinary work. It wasn't about things that were happening to him. It was what Jesus was doing. He was taking our sin upon himself. He was prepared to face the full onslaught of pain. He couldn't do that with his senses dulled. He needed to be clear, he needed to be lucid, and so he declined that wine mixed with gall. And he did that for us, that we might know life in all its abundance. That life is now, but of course we will know its culmination in the life to come as well. I made the point, didn't I, that John develops this theme. So let's look at some of the ways he, he develops this theme in, in, in other writings. How John in particular describes the destiny of those who trust in Christ. In Revelation 7, he writes about a numberless multitude whose robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. And he speaks of them standing before God's throne and the Lamb. And this is what this life is like in verses 16 and 17 in Revelation 7. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now contrast that with Luke. What he writes in Luke 16. The story of the rich man who died and went to hell. Tormented with such a thirst that he begged for someone to go to him and to dip a finger in water and just to, to give him uh, that little bit of water upon his tongue. But of course, no relief was to come. Notice the contrast between the two. What is it that makes the difference between those two destinies? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. What's the difference? The difference is the one who thirsted upon the cross. Jesus, he is the one who makes the difference. As we close, I'd like to just point you to some more words that Jesus records on this theme. Jesus again is speaking, and we read it. It's John 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is an invitation that goes out to anyone. Jesus is the answer. He is the one who truly satisfies.